everyone, my guest today is Ruan Mipagala, who is a men's coach and host of the Rwanda podcast, where he talks about men's challenges, especially in relationships, used with a focus on archetypes and esoteric concepts. Uh, he also has a Substack and second podcast called History of Man. Ruan, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Asad. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Um, you've covered a lot of stuff in your podcast, which I think in some circles is uh, very, uh, you know, the niche groups that talk about those things, like polarity, uh, BDSM, um, things around the dark masculine. Um, and one of the things I wanted to start with is, you know, when you talk about things that are taboo to the mainstream, how do you think about covering those topics? Uh, yeah, it's interesting you brought this up because if you asked me, let's say last year or any time before then, I would have had a more like shameless answer of like, I don't care what people think, something like that. And and that, that was true. I don't know if it's because I recently became a father. Actually, I think that's probably the biggest uh, trigger that I've th been thinking a little bit more about how people think of me and the judgments. And I've taken... Uh, to be honest, I, I've been kind of reworking this this specific subject because there's a lot of things I've shared online when I was younger, particularly about sexuality in a very shameless fashion of like, I, you know, basically just sharing and like really not caring, like really not caring if people thought I was weird or, or judged it. But now I've been thinking like, you know, one day my daughter is going to be old enough to search me. And that's that's come up, that's come up with like these other thoughts. And like, uh, so the short answer is I'm kind of working through it again, to be honest, kind of like when I first started my career 10 years ago of like thinking about like, what are people going to think? But the thing that I do come back to is that I do believe in everything I'm sharing. Uh, I think there's a lot of useful um, perspectives, like, for example, with BDSM, obviously it's not for everyone, but the psychology of BDSM is very useful for relationships, even very vanilla relationships to understand, right? That's like where our primal instincts come from that the field of BDSM happens to highlight in maybe a way that is not so uh, palatable to most people, but it's still useful. Um, so as far as like how I decide, I mean, my process with sharing has been when I find something interesting that is new to me and is useful to me, I want to share it. And that's kind of been my driving force up until recently. It's been very easy to just blast it out there because I didn't really care. And now, honestly, I'm thinking a little bit more <laughs> about how, uh, how I express myself. Uh, and we'll have to delve into the before and the present. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, before the concerns around your daughter potentially finding you, did you get any pushback uh, from people that listen or questions from community or family around your sharing? Yeah, I guess there's different levels. I mean, like the first fear, I think, for anyone, uh, and, and perhaps you experienced this, I, mean, I think every creator maybe experienced this to some level, is um, what are my friends from high school going to think? I mean, that's kind of like the the noise that is in many people's heads, which I think is just a barrier to entry for anything creative. Um, yeah, I mean, you get over that by just putting yourself out there and getting positive feedback that kind of eases that through, I think. Um, as far as like, criticism like for for example one one two, or as i say two areas i get have always been criticized for is uh my take on cults uh which maybe we'll speak about today like i have a neutral and sometimes positive view of my cult experience 
and people who want to categorize cults as purely evil, people who have trouble with like, uh, basically trouble with, you know, categorizing things where things have to be either one way or the other, usually criticize me for that. I've gotten actually a lot of hate mail from people who say, because of the fact I don't demonize my cult experience, then I must be a cult leader or something, right? That's, that's, I've gotten a lot of hate for that. Usually I don't care about that. Sometimes it does get under my skin, to be honest, especially when I get accused of being like something that I'm not, you know, uh, family doesn't really, I, mean, I think my family knows I'm pretty strange compared to the rest of my very conservative Asian family. So they usually don't ask. Um, I think there's a, a fourth piece you, you just asked about. Um, uh, the community and family pushback. Uh, yeah, I mean, the thing that kind of has balanced it out is that I do get positive feedback from people. And I, I mean, my podcast, it's not the most, you know, it's not the most popular podcast in the world, right? Like, you know, I don't have the biggest following, but a lot of people write to me saying that I'm the only source they, they could find on a certain subject. Or like, I, I'm maybe the only person they heard, like, articulate a certain experience that men have and that always keeps me going even if i get like 10 times as much uh criticism and usually the criticism comes from people not really understanding which also makes it easy to take it's like oh you didn't actually listen to the podcast you just picked out one word that is taboo and criticized me you know the other the other thing other than cults is uh pushback from feminists which i, I don't get it as much anymore because i think the culture you know Feminism went a little bit far. So now there's like a counter feminism movement that's become more mainstream. So I'm no longer seen as that weird for saying perhaps men should be masculine. Like it's not that weird. Whereas just a few years ago, if I said something like that online, I would get a lot of feminist hate. So that, yeah, anyway, the culture has shifted in my, in my favor, essentially. <laughs> so I, I'm not, I, I feel a little vindicated actually. Um, you said your, your family... Uh, knows you're the strange kid for for the listeners look at like you and your family for them uh sorry could you say that again yeah uh you said that your family thinks of you as like a strange kid already mm -hmm. uh, and for our listeners like look at you and your family for them like how many do you have siblings or like or like what was that oh yeah, yeah um i have uh one younger brother he's much younger than me he's 10 years younger than me uh, he's in med school, so he did the proper South Asian thing. Um, yeah, and actually, at this point, you know, my parents—I I get a lot, a lot of less criticism now because I did establish my career. You know, when I first started, say, podcasting on taboo subjects, it was maybe a little bit strange, or like there was like this, uh, uh, yeah, this this challenge. I think that's normal to get, especially from a conservative family of what are you doing. But now that I've made a career out of it. I mean, there's not a lot to criticize. And coming back to the present, you said recently you've had maybe more concern about the stuff you're sharing because uh, you have a daughter now and like maybe one day she'll, you know, search for you. So say more about that. Yeah, you know, it's not something I thought I would ever care about, especially when I was in a more shameless state. Um, yeah, it's just the thing that I think about. It's like... Uh, I, I can take a mean comment from someone, but then I think, you know, if my 12 year old daughter in the future sees a mean comment about her father, how will she take it? Will she 
be upset about it? Will she turn on me? Because she's like, oh, all these people are saying and you you say weird things. And it's like, uh, I don't know. I've just I don't really have a conclusion about it yet. I've just been, I guess, uh, more mindful about external eyes. And it, whereas, uh, you know, up until recently, I just if I thought something was interesting, I just said it. And now I'm, I guess, maybe taking a little bit more uh, time to think about how I, I share things. Hmm. I haven't changed any. I mean, I haven't changed any of my stances and I still believe in what I'm saying. It's just I, I am using less swear words on my <laughs> podcast. That's one. That's one thing. So, so it sounds like a majority of the fear is around, not necessarily on the content, but people's reaction to the content. Uh, that, and know. how their reaction will affect my children's reaction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There is, you know, some commentary on uh, like the process of having a family tames men, right? Um, do you feel like either that's happening to you or you see more of that perspective in your life? Uh, yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> I mean, it, it makes sense. I think biologically it makes sense. And actually something I cover in the, in, in my history podcast is, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of research showing that when a man has a baby, his, his, his testosterone drops. Uh, I did have my testosterone check shortly after having uh, the child and it was a little bit lower than before. I mean, I am older though. So that that's another consideration. And then, you know, just, uh, behaviorally, obviously I'm not out chasing women. I'm, uh, it's just a different life stage. So I think in many ways that that is true. I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, and I do think it's part of the life cycle. It's like, there's a stage of life for a man that I call maybe the warrior stage or the adolescent stage where it's all about essentially anabolic growth. Like you want to build your body, you want to build your bank account, you want to figure out you want what you want to do. You go off into the proverbial wilderness and slay demons and figure out things. And then at, at some point, you want to evolve into a more king archetype where you're now maybe not exploring so much, but you're presiding over other people, whether it's a family or a company or whatever, a charity, anything, right? And I do think that's a necessary stage in man. And you can call it taming. It is, I mean, a king is more tame than a warrior who's going out and just like slashing all the time or slaying, whatever that means to you. Um, and that's okay. And I think it's actually important. And I actually think... Uh, people in our modern society, men especially grew up too slow, right? Like there was like the narrative 50 years ago that people grew up too fast, perhaps. And a lot of, a lot of forces in our culture try to keep people as children longer because we, and I, I do think this is based in consumerism. That's maybe another tangent. Um, but I think many men would feel better, especially young men would feel better if they grew up a little bit faster if they saw a little bit more hardship if they took a little bit more responsibility younger if they saw themselves as a man at 18 which is the way our grandfathers saw themselves as opposed to being a 30 year old who still sees himself as a kid which is very common nowadays um so anyways this is to say yes i do think having a family tame is men and i think that's part of the the beauty of the life cycle and uh you said consumerism has something to do with it what do you think? The yeah, I mean, this is not my theory. It's like a, the general idea that if you keep people seeing themselves as children longer, they're more dependent on buying products, right? Like, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, many people have talked about this idea. Um, yeah, if you just look at, let's say, uh, you know, like, I assume we're about the same age, like 
there's a common millennial expression of adulting. Like when mm -hmm. you do things yeah. that adults do that people, you know, I'm in my, I guess, mid thirties now, people my age still use the term adulting. It's like in the Paleolithic era, you would have been a grandfather by now. <laughs> like stop acting like you're doing something crazy by paying your rent or looking for an apartment. Like that's not, you know, and, and it is, uh, and I say it with a little bit of jest, but like, you know, our grandfathers, all of our grandfathers probably really were adult men when they were 18 or maybe younger even. Like they were really responsible for other things beyond even their own lives. And you see the opposite now. And there's probably many forces to it, but I do think consumerism is one. We could also say statism is another. Like this is a little bit conspiracy theory adjacent, but I think it's true. It's like, it. uh, it's like, uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying that there's like some evil group uh, trying to construct this, but I do think it's like the natural force of our society, let's say, where people become more and more dependent on the state and less and less dependent on their families and certainly less dependent on themselves. So like we have all these people living in isolated boxes, exchanging everything they need from the rest of the world in an impersonal fashion with money, as opposed to these small communities or anyway, there's a lot to say on this, but like certainly men are less self-sufficient. People are less self-sufficient than they were many centuries ago. Uh, we're a lot more dependent on the States. We're a lot more dependent on the global economy. Uh, and anyways, yeah, it keeps us kind of young. It keeps us like, uh, kind of in a, in a more child mode. And like from a male psychology perspective, I do think when you're dependent on products, and this is actually a theme in Fight Club, uh, you know, this the whole thing of like, he's looking around his apartment and seeing the price tags on things. It's like, he's been buying all this stuff to fill this void in his soul that he later finds can much be better served by fighting in a club, right? And it's obviously an extreme mythology, but it, I do, do think points to something true about men. When you were going through this transition period of, uh, you, you called it warrior to kink, right? Uh, what was some of the stuff that came up that was hard for you? Uh, well, I think I'm, I'm still going through it now. Uh, I think with any identity shift, you know, to be honest, I think it's maybe true for every new parent. You do kind of miss parts of your single life when you didn't have responsibilities, when, you know, you could really do whatever you want. I think that's a, a natural thing. I think I am kind of trying to figure out like how I want to be because I had a very clear when I was say in my teens and early 20s, I had a very clear conception of how I wanted to be at this age. And I think I've mostly fulfilled that. But now it kind of feels like I just fulfilled my adolescent dream. And now I have it. And now I'm like in a totally new phase. Like I didn't really get to I didn't really get to coast as like the let's say uh, individuated warrior for very long. Right. B because life you know, life is short. Right. And I didn't want to have a child at 40. And actually when you see guys who are, you know, being a player into later age is kind of not that cool. Right. They're not, they're kind of violating, I think, biological processes. Right. Like I, I do think there's an urge, maybe not to have children for everyone, but to preside over something. And anyway, the challenge, yeah, that's basically the challenge I've been going through now, like rediscovering my identity and stuff like that. And when you were an adolescent, what was the picture you had of yourself that is close to true now? Kind of, uh, you know, I just wanted to be cool. <laughs> like I wanted to be confident. I wanted women to like me. I wanted men to respect me. I think just typical, typical teenage boy desires that I, yeah, I think are, are universal. Um, I was very anxious. 
and I had very low self-esteem. So maybe, and I do think when people, when a person has a, a self-perceived lack, as I did, you kind of go into like a, a hyper, you know, a hyperbolic version of the opposite. Like if you're shy, you see yourself as like surrounded by people and loved by everyone. And, you know, with a, if you, if you didn't get girls when you were young, you imagine yourself as Dan Bilzerian, whereas the guy who maybe was fulfilled in high school doesn't think, you know, in such grand illusions or grand, grandiose ways. But yeah, that was basically my, my, my vision to travel the world and be cool, essentially. Um, and, and traveling the world sounds like you also you you've hit that because you're 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 in Thailand you're going to Mexico yeah yeah I mean I did free myself from location which is another thing that I think you know the world culture has shifted you know due to the pandemic like everything's remote all of a sudden um, yeah so that that's actually kind of normal now I think even people working regular jobs can do this now so it's mm -hmm. you know how do you feel about uh, a more, I don't know if nomadic is the right word, but something close to that versus being more rooted. Um, I think it's another thing that is with life stages. It's like, there's the, I think it's a Winston Churchill quote that if you're, if you're not liberal, when you're young, you have no heart. And if you're not yeah. conservative, when you're old, you have no head. Um, and I think about that a lot because I've become a lot more conservative, uh, you know, especially lately. Partly it's because the culture has gone extreme left, but I think also just growing up, you, you become more conservative. And from a non-political perspective, it's like when you're young, you have this like abundance of energy that you should spend liberally to see new things and take in new ideas and try out everything. But at some point you do need to conserve your energy if, if you want to not die, right? Like someone who's still partying, like a 20 year old when he's 45 is probably going to an early grave, right? So I think just like on a, I guess, more biological level that is natural. So I, I, anyway, to, in regards to your question, I think uh, living nomadically is great when you're young, but at some point, you know, it, it is costly, even like monetarily. I forget about the pandemic, which is throwing things off. But like, if you're living in a different place every every month, let's say, which is the way I was living for a while, um, you're spending a lot of resources, mainly time, but also sometimes money on plane tickets on this and that, you know, you go to a new place, your first week, a lot of attention is spent on figuring things out. Whereas if you're living in the same town your whole life, you've already figured all that stuff out a long time ago. So you can really conserve your attention and maybe money and time too. So yeah, I guess I'm, I'm moving to a stage where I hope I just stay in Mexico, right? Like I don't <laughs> want to move around anymore with a child. Like before we start recording, I was sharing how like, I used to move around the world with like literally just a carry on and a backpack. And now I have, you know, we're shipping a lot of our stuff to Mexico. I have like almost 200 kilos of belongings. And like, I can't believe I have that much stuff. Like I came to Thailand with 15 kilos of like all of my things could fit in these two pieces of luggage. And now it's a lot, which is, you know, it's just, it's just how it goes. So I, I don't plan on moving every month anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I hear you on the, that's something I've been thinking about, like staying in one place, uh, for a long time or like you know checking out different places or optimizing for what's the best place um as well um is uh why'd you pick mexico uh my wife has some friends there um it's closer to the states i've been on a bad time zone for phone calls for a long time so it'd be nice to be back right like this is we're doing this 8 a.m my time which is the only <laughs> time that really worked for me um and uh and also <laughs> a side thing is uh my wife and I have like this side project 
it might become a big project where we made this aphrodisiac soda where most of the ingredients come from Mexico. So we were paying a lot to have them shipped to Thailand. <laughs> now we're just going to yeah. go to the source and get them for cheap. Cool. How did you come up with the formula for that? Uh, it's actually funny. I mean, we're going in another direction, but uh, I had a dream. So I have, I have kind of bad eczema. I don't have to go to all the details on this actually, but I had a dream that there's this herb that would help it. Like someone, someone in this dream just told me this and I looked it up. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's this herb that um, is also an aphrodisiac. It's also one of the main ingredients from the original Coca-Cola. So it actually tastes pretty good. Hmm. And anyway, I tinkered around over the last couple of months. It came up with this pretty good tasting soft drink that also has good uh, properties for your blood flow and circulation. So cool. that's basically how we came up with it. You must be a pretty open-minded person to take a specific inspiration from a dream like that and like build upon it. <clears throat> Yeah, well, I mean, it's like I had nothing to lose by ordering the herb and seeing if it tasted good. And I found yeah. out it tasted good. It definitely increased my libido, which is fun. And then it's just, yeah, it's fun. You know, if if I if the dream told me to take something that tasted terrible, I probably would go. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things I was I was wondering about because you do cover uh, a lot of really interesting topics on your podcast and some things you go deeper on because I've noticed you've had a couple of guests multiple times is I would imagine that people see you as an expert on some of those things. And do you ever feel like people's expectations are maybe higher than where you're at or like, does that like bother you at all? Um, no, I mean, it hasn't come up too much. Uh, I guess when I spoke about sexuality more and I, and I was a single man and dating, I think some women had a, a, an unfair expectation of who I, who I was going to be in some ways. Uh, but other than that, it's, you know, it wasn't, um, not really. It, once in a while, let's say maybe especially a younger man who listens to my podcast might have some sort of, uh, I guess we could call it like a guru complex, but I, I, I could usually smooth that out pretty soon. I, people realize I'm a normal person pretty quickly. So, you know. Cool. Um, and on the subject of gurus, let's transition a little bit to your experience in, uh, in, in cults and cult dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, actually, one thing I want to say yeah. that maybe ties what we just spoke about to this is uh, one of the reasons that I think I was able to be shameless when I started publishing things online was the fact that I had just left the cult where I started publishing while I was in the cult, where that reality totally validated all the things that the rest of the world thought was weird. And when I was in the cult, the cult felt a lot more like that reference group was a lot more real than say my old friends. So I could talk about things that were taboo because my cult, my cult world validated me hmm. and that mattered more to me than whatever people from high school would say. Right. Cool. So that gave me that kind of initial boost of shamelessness in the beginning. Um, and then that, that kind of like, yeah, it just, it gave me the confidence to keep sharing things that I felt like sharing about even as I re-entered the real world. The real world with quotes around it. Yeah, interesting. interesting. And because I think some related to this, I think some people who come out of cults are 
maybe embarrassed about their experience or they try to uh, unlearn the things they've learned, even if some of them, you know, were helpful. But sounds like you you didn't necessarily have that uh, problem. Not for the most part. I mean, I, I, it was, it, there's still difficulties for me. Um, but I think one thing that helped me was I, I, for the most part, did things that I felt were good for me. And I did enter the cults, one, knowing it was a cult, even though I didn't really totally understand what a cult was. And I think most people don't. And I didn't plan on staying forever, right? Like uh, the cult I was in was actually based in San Francisco. I had met a lot of people who say were tech founders who maybe, or like early Apple employees who maybe gave everything they had, like all of their wealth to the cult because they thought they would never leave. And like that, like in the beginning, I met people like that. I was like, I definitely don't want to become that. There's still a lot I have to gain. I think that's one thing that kept me sane. And another thing, and I didn't really have the words to describe this until more recently I've been studying general semantics, is uh, I think I, I just did a good job of recognizing the meaning behind words and not getting too lost in the abstractions. So even though I was totally bought into their reality in many ways, I could see the ideas for what they were as opposed to getting lost in the changing definitions of things, which I think, you know, if you look at this is a whole other subject, but if you look at politics and the way people argue, let's say with the modern culture wars, you could see most people who are yelling don't really understand the meaning of the words they're using. They're just using these symbols that their party gave to them. And because of that, they're not understanding the other side and they're not even really understanding what they're saying. Whereas the same thing happens in cults. The people who I've seen who've gotten the most like 10 years later still have PTSD or still really are damaged other than like maybe, you know, I'm not talking about physical abuse or something like they're just like, they just lost their mind essentially. Um, they, these people didn't really understand uh, how their reality was changing based on different, different changing of uh, words. I, I don't know if I explained that well, I, I might've kept it too high level, but. Is there an example you can give on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the simple example was, uh, so the cult I was in focused on sexuality um, and they had a continually changing definition of the word orgasm. Uh, if you went to their intro class, they, they slightly changed the definition from like the typical, you know, pleasurable events to a state of high sensation. And for most people, that's not a big jump, right? Like many esoteric Tantra people have the same definition, like there's like a state of orgasm you can live in, which you kind of take metaphorically and mm -hmm. people can accept that. You go a little bit deeper and that state of orgasm starts to become a little bit more spiritualized. Like it becomes a little bit more like the Tao and Taoism where it's mm -hmm. like the orgasm makes you do things and uh, you feel your orgasm. And then at, uh, at different points, it starts to seem like chi, like in Chinese medicine, like you have orgasm in your body. And all of these jumps are pretty small metaphoric jumps like they're not, a, they're not a, a rapid changing the de definition, but once you're in, in that world for maybe six months, at some point, the word orgasm becomes synonymous with God. And it, it no longer really means anything that it used to. And, and most people didn't realize that. I happen to realize that I think maybe because I would, I, I'm a writer, I write things down and I, would, and I would see the sentences that I would think and it made it maybe I think this is what made it easier for me to say like, hey, the word orgasm means something totally different than it did six months ago yeah. and where it became a little bit uh, yeah, detrimental to people. is like when the word orgasm became synonymous with God 
and synonymous with whatever the cult was telling you to do. And people get really confused at this point. And um, yeah, the people who've really been mentally damaged could not pick that up mm. in, in my observation. And that's just one example. There's other, other examples sure. where that's yeah. the, the big one. And if I'm trying to sort of um, flesh out the other side of it, like what was, like I'm trying to think of someone who's listening who's like, okay, like how do I figure out if I'm in a cult-like situation, right? And like, how would you descri- like describe either that as a manipulation tactic or like other other things that maybe um, the cult did? Yeah, I mean, uh, to be fair, I think all, almost all group dynamics, especially when they're effective, are basically the same thing as cult dynamics. It's just what we call cults is like taken to an extreme degree against what we could call the cult of conventional reality. Like, like all of these perceptions, like even something like the United States of America, I'm not saying America is a cult. I'm saying that our perception of there being a thing called America is not that different than what I just described with like, it's like, it's it only exists because there's a collective agreement that exists. Same thing with uh, values, same thing with democratic versus Republican ideals or who the leader should be or, or pretty much any any dynamic of a group that's bigger than a family, bigger than like direct social uh, interaction. So bigger than Dunbar's number. Any group beyond that is running on some sort of abstract perception that is essentially what cults run on. Cults take it to what we call cults takes it to maybe an extreme degree where people believe that, that if they drink the cyanide, they're somehow going to go to another planet or so, whatever. But if you look at some of the beliefs we have that are more readily accepted, they're not that different. I mean, at least in terms of, the, of how people believe it, like most of the things we believe, even if you look at something like, say, nutrition, everything that I believe about nutrition, I've taken from the Internet that someone else has told me is true. And I don't really know. Right. Like when I was a kid, I believed in the food pyramid. Now I believe in the stuff that keto people say. I don't really know. I don't know for sure. I'm assuming they're true. And I still believe it's true. Like I believe the earth is round. I'm not saying the earth is flat, but it's like all of these observations we've taken from other people and we assume them to be true. It's also kind of what allows cults to work. Um, so this might've been a very long abstract answer to it, but I, I do think, you know, anytime you're, you're part of a group that's bigger than direct social connection, you're probably believing in some stuff that you can't prove. That's not to say that you shouldn't believe in anything, but we should be, we should be aware of it especially when there's a leader involved, I guess this is more directly answering your question. When there's a leader involved that's getting you to take collective action, you should always question it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I poke at all my friends who are politically political, particularly political, I should say. It's like, I mean, how do you know that this is right? Right. The, you know, if we look at the left versus right war in America, both sides are very clear that, that their side has the correct view on right and wrong. They happen to be different. How do, I mean, no one can really say for sure that the that their side is right. And anyway, you see a lot of other behaviors occur with this kind of thing. But um, maybe you should always you should always question things like this. Yeah, I, I hear you on that. There's even there's a concept in marketing called a thousand true fans. You might be yeah. familiar with mm-hmm. it. That's similar to the idea, but on a less nefarious maybe scale, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then. To your point about the founding of the United States, I mean, the people who 
fought for it at the time, right? Probably needed to have that cult-like solidarity and like conviction of belief. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, why would you sacrifice the things you you did you do to have it? Um, it? It's a necessity. I mean, nations are essentially really big, well-functioning cults that hopefully benefit their people. And the nation state, I should say, specifically, but also nations as like just a collection of an ethnic group. Like you, I mean, yeah, like you said, the founding fathers, the uh, the American Revolution wouldn't have worked if people didn't perceive in a thing called America. Yep. And like, I'm not against that. I'm very happy to be American. I'm very grateful I was born in America. I am thrilled to have an American passport. I'm totally on board with the abstraction <laughs> of America. And it is an abstraction that we've all just collectively agreed. And yeah, that's, yeah, that's just how it goes. So in your mind, how do you, so there's one thing you said, which is like deference to authority. What are some other markers of whether you're part of a, I don't know what the right word is, healthy cult versus something more nefarious? Uh, I think it comes down to basically a, a, bit, a more simple thing of are the collective actions you're taking individually beneficial? And, and, and even with something like a nation, like the United States, which I think is a net positive abstraction, there are many, th- I mean, there's many things that my tax dollars go to that I don't agree with. Right. So that's, mm-hmm. that's, I'm okay with it. Right. It's still net positive. I'm happy to have an American passport, even if the money I, I send the government goes to things I don't want with a, something that's say more nefarious. Like if you're doing things that harm your family or harm you, I mean, you just have to kind of look at it because uh, there is always going to be deference to some leader, whether it's we're talking about a nation or your dad or your, I don't know, some sort of community leader or or a person who you follow online because you're one of the thousand true fans. Like, the, I mean, that's how humans can excel uh, beyond animals. It's like we gr- you know, join groups, we allow someone to make some decision for us to some degree that we couldn't make on our own. And we get to ideally go further. If listening to that person, like if if the president is making decisions that are harming Americans, if the cult leader is making decisions, or if your your father is making decisions that harm that harm you and your siblings, well, that's not a good person to follow. I, I think it is that it is that simple, although identifying it can be complicated. Yeah. And also, we're probably socially wired to. Our natural instinct is to probably obey the leader, you know, whoever it is. Yeah, I think you know because I mean, this is kind of dog. I did an episode on the dog brain, like the our our paleomammalian brain, uh, where that kind of dictates all of our emotions, and it's evolved specifically for social situations, and uh, every person, every mammal wants to know who their pack leader is like it actually feels very uncomfortable to not know mm-hmm. and uh, and unless you're the alpha male where you are the pack leader in which case you're under a lot of stress because everyone is deferring to you like everyone and even even the most alpha human male wants to know who's who who is above him like every dog wants to know who the, who their master is and i think uh yeah it's it's not it's not a bad thing like people who are purely individualistic and think oh i'm never going to join a group i'm never going to follow anyone they ultimately become nihilistic because it's very um dysphoric to not be part of some group and like reality is maybe a spiritual view but reality is too complex 
for one person to distill on their own. Like we need other people, whether it's a formally following a leader or being a part of a group that takes an action that gives us like a very primal sense of security. And it's not, that's not a bad thing. It's just like, there's, especially nowadays, there's, there are unlimited reference groups to be a part of. Uh, there are unlimited leaders to follow. So you should do your diligence and uh, try to pick ones that lead to good things and be willing to, you know, be like, you know, cause a lot of the cults work or my cults, especially I, I bought in because the leader gave so much positive um, benefit in the beginning, right? She gave me so much useful advice. Like she, the group really did help me build real confidence and get over certain problems I had. Um, however, they would use that against you in that they would give you a lot of value up front, kind of like a really, um, really useful uh, front end product, and then really milk you on the back end. And it's some, and you have to make sure you exit beforehand. It's kind of just like you know, you voted for a certain candidate, you're all about him because he had a great, uh, great campaign. But now he's tanking the country. You got to switch your allegiance if that's the case. Like you have to look at immediate evidence. And I think it's very hard to do that because we are also wired to kind of we we have dog loyalty in us. Like if someone, if a, a certain chief has really benefited us with their leadership, it's natural to keep following them to the grave. But we got to know when to exit the ship, basically. I have a couple of reactions to this because uh, that was super interesting. Okay. Uh, one is you know, there's, it's might be easy to find structure if you are at a company because there's already inbuilt hierarchy, right? But what about people who have a more nomadic or independent lifestyle? Like how do they figure out who to follow? I have found this as a challenge actually, since I say moved out to Asia and I was traveling around, like obviously it's hard to make real friends uh i mean in-person friends but also real in terms of quality when you're moving around a lot um and then and actually for for many years i, I didn't really have a, an in-person community like I, I had people i would meet up with i had my real friends back home but i only spoke to them through a phone and then you know i had like whatever dating life let's say but like um yeah i you know it is it is quite challenging and i think um during the pandemic, especially because I couldn't move around anymore, I did re-recognize um, the importance of having a good community. Um, I, I think one has to be a little bit opportunistic. Actually, I forgot what your actual question was. I'm sorry. <laughs> keep going, keep going. And then I'll-, I'll... Uh, find, Finding the finding community, it can be challenging. I mean, I actually don't know if I have a, other than saying it's challenging uh, as far as like, I do think I'll, I'll, I'll speak for my recent experience because of the pandemic and my recognition that community is more important than maybe I previously perceived. Um, I did maybe uh, lower my standards of who I spent time with, which I, I mean, maybe I was far to an extreme on the other end, but I, I do think um having a clear conception of the type of people you want to be around the type of say people you want to defer to, if you're going to defer. And I, essentially this comes down to knowing your values is a really great starting point because otherwise, um, yeah, you might end up spending time with people that you don't really want to align with. And then you have to constantly check yourself of like, Oh, this group is going in this direction. 
it's, it's kind of the same as following a, a cult leader that is not aligned with you. It's not even to say a given group is bad. It's just like, is that the direction you want to go? Something I wanted to ask you uh, about, about cults was, are there, and you've already touched on this a little bit, but I think it'd be cool to like flesh it out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, are there things that people or businesses can actually positive things people in business can learn from cults from your experience yeah i mean a lot of internet marketers uh speak about creating cults um a lot of you know yeah a lot of people speak about it like there's like the ethical cult building idea there's uh creating a cult following i mean cults work because they basically mirror tribal dynamics where there's a single chief everyone really knows each other and they're all really aligned on a given set of values. Um, and that's essentially what every influencer is trying to do. Every, every company is trying to do is the same exact thing. Um, like when something has a cult following, like we know what that means. Um, so yeah, I think on a marketing end, a lot can be learned. I think on a community building end, a lot can be learned. Um, and, uh, and I would say maybe on a, on a familial end, end, like, and I have actually been thinking about this as, you know, being a head of a household now, not that I want to turn my family into a cult per se, but the type of bonding and understanding and group identity and trust that I felt in the good times when I was in the cults, it was such a nourishing experience, truth, truly, even if it had nefarious, a nefarious back end where they're trying to milk you for money and things like that. It, it genuinely was the first, like only time in my life that I felt so close to a, a group of people and had so much trust and so much understanding and so much empathy and so much fun because of that. It was kind of like being in a, a very, very highly functional, empathic, romantic relationship, but not so romantic, more social with a lot of people. Like that's what it really felt like. And I think that's how families should feel. Like people I know who have really functional families that, that's like where they talk all the time and have like this group thread where they're always like, like that seems to be, you know, that's how families should be. And it would be great if communities could be like that. Imagine having that with your neighbors where like there's so much trust between you and like so much joy and laughter. Like that is like the, the experience that I think uh, humans are all craving on some level. And, um, and consumerism is trying to fill in with products <laughs> to go back to that thing. And, and what about the experience at the cult made it so nourishing? And, and what I'm trying to get at is how are you trying to, how are you figuring out how to use that um, as you think about your own family? Well, I'll say, uh, so one of my favorite books that I, I just finished this morning, actually, uh, The Network State by Balaji Siris. I've, I've heard about it. I've heard about okay. it. It's so good. And he talks about things like this. I'm actually going to uh, share something from him, which is because um, he's talking about creating a network state. It's like not exactly, I don't think he uses the word cult in his book at all, but to me, it's the same thing. Um, on And one thing that he said that I thought he articulated so well is that to really make a strong community or a strong nation, um, you want to pick a moral value that is different than what the rest of the world believes which seems like a transgressive idea, but he gives some examples like um, the keto community, which is no one would call it a cult. No one even would call it a nation, but it's a group of people that like the hardcore people really believe that eating carbs is the worst thing you can do. Most of the world doesn't believe it, not to that degree, 
But the fact that they strongly believe in that thing is bonding, right? Keto restaurants, with, with which have an, enough of a user base, really have a strong user base because the rest of the world is serving bread with every meal. They don't, right? It's like, it's a very inconsequential thing, but it's something that really creates like a, a sense of group identity. And I think about like with my cult, like even the thing that, they, that I said, their redefinition of the word orgasm, the rest of the world thinks orgasm is this. They think that orgasm is that, that gives a very strong sense of, of identity. And I think this, this, you know, this hits on this very primal circuit of this us versus them thing of like, oh, my people look this one way or my people believe in this one thing or we believe that the God is in the sun and they believe the God is in the ocean. We're different. That makes us, that that really strengthens the perception of us. And um, again, I forgot where your question was, but I think- No, I, 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 think, no I, I, you, you, you answered it. Uh, and I guess my follow-up to that is, how, like, how do you see this, this um, us versus them- dynamic or pattern how do you see yourself applying that to your family or that's too personal how should a family think about it yeah well in my family too uh you know i'll say one thing maybe we'll we'll also talk about is polarity like i really believe in in biology-based polarity for the sake of mutual happiness of the man and the woman in the relationship it's not the most popular idea but the fact that i believe in it so strongly is kind of a bonding thing. I mean, and I do believe on a, you know, it's not just like a random cultural thing. I think it actually works better, mm -hmm. but also people who say, listen to my podcast and want to have a relationship in a certain way. That's maybe counter to, let's say the, the feminism driven perspective on what relation or feminism, consumerism, androgyny version of relationship, you know, that's a stand. Mm -hmm. And like, that kind of bonds me and all the other people that, believe in that and you know men and women and um yeah i guess that's one one example yeah that's cool because it's, i mean it's not that i want my immediate family to be contrarian to everything but if let's say my my hope is that my children will see that our way of doing things whatever quirks we have is actually more effective than say the families that are on their phones all day or whatever the thing is hmm. and i would hope that would have a, a bonding effect on our family yeah i want to ask you more about this uh, about your views of polarity and how you think about it in in a second but i'm also curious like the way i see you've you've been on this journey for um my guess is like at least 10 years and you've come to this like point of view which is uh, relationships are better with polarity i'm giving a rough summary right sure um is what if someone who's like I'm trying not not everyone has that drive to like seek and understand and come up with like this point of view, right? Um, there's some people that will just you know get a job, start a family. Um, is there is there like how, can they also create that kind of closeness, or or does it or does or do you really have to like? think through what you stand for to create something like that? Um, well, I'll say, so when it comes to anything, and we mentioned this uh, in the beginning of the conversation, it's like um, to really care about something and like want to go deep in a subject, usually it starts with a perceived lack. So like um, most people who maybe never had an issue in their relationship, maybe they don't, they don't think too consciously about how the relationship could be or, or 
you know, how, how it might be improved until there's a problem usually. So like um, a lot of the people who reach out to me for coaching are guys who are maybe about my age, maybe a little bit older who um, or maybe a little bit younger, even who never really thought about their relationships too deeply, but maybe now they've been in a relationship for a while and they're not having sex anymore. And they, there's something that's been lost that was there early on. And now they're like, Oh crap, there's something I didn't look at. So now they're reaching out to me. Whereas the, mainly the reason why I've spent so much time thinking about this is that my sense of lack came much earlier in life, right? Like, like I, 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 that's, that's really it, right? Like no one gets into personal development because they just want to have a 1% improvement. They get into personal development, especially on a specific subject because they see themselves as in the negatives and they want to get back to something. Right. So yeah, I guess my, my early social anxieties and inability to connect with women had me focus on it a lot. I went through various stages, you know, there's like the pickup world, which had one very superficial way of looking at things. Not to say that it wasn't even, not to say there wasn't value there, but it was very superficial. I went to the other end in one taste, which is a very feminine centric um, empathy driven thing, which is also very useful. I had to learn really how to empathize, which I did get there. However, they had a, a bit of a, they, they definitely subdued what I think is healthy masculinity there for a more female dominant uh, culture. And then since then, I've kind of found like this uh, balance in between the two of, of and, and looking back at biology, right? Because um, as I mentioned with abstractions, you know, when, we're, when you're believing in things that are only in your mind, it's very easy to get detached from things that are objective. Whereas the solution to that is to look back at what's objective. And what's objective is before humans had cultural perceptions or how we should be, how any sense of should there were certain dynamics that worked biologically, which is not to say that we should listen to them literally, right? Because cavemen were raping all the time. I'm not saying we should do that, but there's certain things that still dictate attraction, uh, still dictate closeness between a man and a woman and still dictate what makes a relationship or family work. And we can go back to that and build off of that rather than building off of something totally detached from, re from physical reality. Like, oh yeah, gender is whatever you believe in. Like, that's not true. I mean, you can express yourself on the far end, on the human culture end, however you want, but there are objective things that existed long before cultural perceptions. And that has to be the starting point because otherwise you're really just floating in space of abstraction. Um, so, I mean, and, and more specifically, I mean, everything that I believe as far as male and female or yeah, male and female behavior that is positive and healthy in a relationship is based on these pre-conscious triggers, right? Like, regardless of what you believe about feminism, most women, most straight women get turned on around dominant signals from a man. It's, it's, you can, or even women who think that's a bad thing, like the so-called bad feminist who's embarrassed that she gets turned on when a man is dominant, she still gets turned on, right? So like that is an objective thing. And we shouldn't try to, we should at least build our culture off of what is already true about our inner workings. Is, my, is how I view things. If if we were having this discussion around polarity, let's call it before World War II, it, it, it perhaps might've been a more simpler discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, what we've seen after World War II is there is a trend where women are taking a more masculine role, especially at work, right? Um, and 
could say men are exploring their feminine side more. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, in your minds, reconcile this like last this trend to this trend towards the opposite of what our maybe our natural instincts are? Yeah, I think there's many factors. Since you mentioned World War II specifically, I'll say you know that's that's uh, when women were like you know like went to start work again. Sorry, join the workforce in mass. Right, right, right. In American. Yeah. Um, but yeah, since you mentioned the war, though, it's like I mean, because there's other points you can say. This is you, you use know, whatever points are are are, are, are yeah. sort of. Well, anyway, I'm just going off of the World War II thing because yeah. I, I like that you mentioned it. Is um, uh, since World War II, the West has had incredible abundance. So one factor is simply, you know, the quote that Joe Rogan says all the time, like hard times make strong men, that whole thing. You know, we've had easy times, which has allowed men to be soft, right? Without any threat to say the United States, men as a whole didn't have to be hard. Like that, that's actually, it's not because culture necessarily tried to um, make men feminine. It's just like the incentives of reality no longer required men to be hard. For the most part, most men in most situations. Um, another factor, and I would say, you know, I, sometimes I do rag on feminism as like a, a, a net negative uh, ideology. However, one of the reasons why feminism was created and was perhaps necessary was that men in the power role, and I don't know exactly what the cause of it was, as many theories, but stop fulfilling their end. Right. And then maybe, you know, some feminists might say it started 5,000 years ago for whatever reason. Right. Like if you look at polarized dynamics. Right. And and I'll I'll go on like from a a biological route. Women get pregnant. They do the most important internal function for any human group. Right. They create life in their bodies. It puts them in an extremely vulnerable state. So what the what males, their role in that process is, is providing and protecting. Right. Like that's like simple you know, a very simple way of looking at it. Um, and, but it's, it's, it's an asymmetrical but equal exchange, right? Ideally, both parties are contributing the same amount of energy in a very different way. At some point in society, and we could say maybe it started with the Neolithic revolution, but, you know, or, or with the industrial revolution, at some, at some point, uh, men in the power role, largely because society developed specifically around the competitive thing, at some point, in the last 5,000 years, that balance of uh, cost to benefit got skewed. Whereas when you, but when, when you start the 20th century, women are still in that internally focused role, but they're not getting as much benefit as they did maybe in the hunter gatherer time. I, I, there's probably more to it than this. This is a simplistic way of looking at it a bit, but I do think that, you know, I totally understand why, you know, Susan B. Anthony, you know, started the first wave of feminism, right? Like women were actually not getting a, a, a good shake, right? Like if women were getting, if all women in society were getting um, uh, really taken, if they were really being taken care of by the men in society, they probably wouldn't really care so much. And I'm not, not saying that women should or shouldn't vote. It's like the fact that they needed to fight for their rights came from the fact that they weren't getting enough benefit. Um, whereas, you know, so like in, in my relationship, uh, I feel like, I mean, I, I pay for everything because my wife is with the child most of the time. I think it would be unfair to expect her to contribute money. Um, and I feel like I'm giving her a gift by providing everything. It's not that I'm trying to like financially dominate her and like hold that over her. It's like, she takes care of the baby, which is extremely important. So I pay the bills, which is also extremely important. 
And um, I think because of that, uh, that exchange has been lost. And I, and I hear this from women a lot is that they can't trust men to take care of them. So of course they have to earn their own money. And I think it's understandable, but then that makes us all these isolated independent units rather than interdependent uh, sexual beings. Yeah. What comes up for me is like the prisoner's dilemma, which is like, yeah, you depend yeah, on someone. I have but a tattoo on my bicep. Oh, cool. Oh, perfect. <laughs> uh, but they, like, if it's like, if you depend on someone and they uh, help you, it's like the great outcome, but, if you depend on someone and they let you down, it's like the worst of all. Sorry. Right. But, but it's also like, yeah, you have, it's like the more likely scenario, but also the worst of all scenarios. Yeah. So you have women, let's say through second wave and third wave feminism, uh, believing like, okay, the best way to be is to make my own money and be totally independent, right? The, the strong independent woman thing. And that is because of the prisoner's dilemma you just mentioned. A not bad strategy because you don't you're not you're not um, exposed to the sucker's payoff, which would be you have a man's child and he abandons you, right? That's the worst thing that could happen to a woman, in, a female in the wild, or a woman in society. And because you know, in, in, anyways, so it made sense for women. The problem is now women are not fulfilled in relationships. And I know, I know a lot of women, a lot of my good friends, women are in this position where they've really fulfilled the the ideal of third wave feminism, they've become successful, they're independent, but there's like no room for a man in their lives. There's no opportunity for family, which is not to say that they have to have that, but if they wanted that, they don't really have an opportunity for it. And the relationships tend to not be so great because they, they can't enter their feminine state where they would be fulfilled and a masculine man would want to be with them. How does this play into how you think about raising your daughter? It's complicated. It's a good question because because <laughs> I do think okay, I don't want my my. It's like if my I, I obviously you know I mainly preach per polarity, even though I, I mostly speak to men. I, I let women speak to women because you know it's, I think that's just better. I think that's the way it's supposed to be too, uh, right? In 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 uh, the Paleolithic era men spent most of their time with men and women spent most of the time with women. Like it's kind of unnatural to, for a man and a woman to be isolated, which is why I think there's so many misunderstandings between men and women. We're not really meant to understand each other, but that's a, that's yeah, a separate I, thing. I, I would say gender segregation has been the norm in human history for the most, in most societies. Yeah. Yeah. I think let's so say now uh, we're not doing that so much. So it's like, uh, yeah, anyway, I, I, to your point, pre-World War II, I don't think, I don't know if this is true, but I don't think men and women were having as much conflict back then because they were kind of separate. Mm -hmm. um, pros and cons to that. But anyways, to, to, regarding my daughter, it's like, I have thought about this a lot too. Like I wouldn't want her to, as a little girl, hear me say, oh, it's important for women to, or women are fulfilled when they surrender, which I think is very true. Very true in a relationship. I wouldn't want her to hear that out of context and think, oh, the first man who likes me, I should just like give my life to him. What if that guy sucks? What if that guy doesn't take care of her? Then she's got the suckers payoff. I don't want that. I want, and then of course, you know, it, it's I, I want her to be smart and successful and have full agency in her life. I also don't want her to be, you know, one of these very successful 40 year old female entrepreneurs who are totally unfulfilled in their relationships because they can't get out of the masculine role. Um, so as far as how I'm going to raise my daughter, I'm not totally sure. I think I'm going to lean on my wife mostly for that because she's a woman and knows that 
world a little bit more. And it's something that uh, my wife and I speak about a lot, actually, because um, I think it is very challenging uh, for women nowadays. Like, yeah. Because my, and I don't want to speak for her because she's not on this podcast, but my understanding is she's had a similar journey where she's had to reconcile uh, sort of this yeah. masculine part of her and, and, and sort of surrendering to the more feminine part of her. Yeah. And I think that's been her own, like you know, I mentioned my own identity shift. She's had also a big identity shift of like always being independent her whole life. And like now for the first time, and she said this a lot, like this is the first time she's been dependent on a man since her father, when she was a little girl. And I think, you know, she spent all of her adulthood being independent and it's a big shift to suddenly let me take care of things. Um, and I can see that's a very challenging thing because she, like on a very primal level, she's exposing herself to the, the potential of a sucker's payoff, right? Like what if I just disappear? I mean, that puts her in a very vulnerable state and I totally understand why that would make any woman feel very uncomfortable. Um, and I do think, you know, on the male side of things, in, in educating men about polarity, it's not about just saying, hey, you should be dominant because women will get turned on by you. Like that's maybe one element, but it's like, you should understand also, because this isn't my big criticism of the red pill world, because they, they share a lot of things that are true on a superficial level with a, a total lack of empathy and like a lot of resentment towards women, which is why you see these red pill guys doing better when they were say a nice guy and like totally say simping or like being totally weak around women, they're doing better now, but very rarely do you see them have a very uh, healthy relationship where their woman isn't resentful because they themselves have this fear and resentment of women. Whereas whenever I teach men about polarity, they should understand the extreme vulnerability a woman enters when she's entering the feminine state where she's surrendering. Like you need to understand that. Like it is a big responsibility because a lot of guys complain like, oh, my girlfriend won't be feminine. My girlfriend won't surrender. Yeah, that is annoying. It's, it would be great if she would, but does she have a good reason to? Like, have you demonstrated that you actually have the competence and that you have the willingness and ability to really take care of her when she lets her walls down? Like, are your walls better at protecting her than her walls? If not, she should keep her walls up, right? And, and that is something a man should understand. It's not about uh, conquering. It's about providing a kingdom that she would be happy to enter. Um, I had a couple of more thoughts around just uh, raising your daughter that I wanted to sure. bring up, if that's okay. Just because I think I think there's something really interesting there that I want to like, and, I, and it's something I, I've thought about, like I don't have kids right now, but I have thought about like, how I'm going to raise them. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's, if you think of, not your situation, but like a traditional situation, there's a traditional father and he's raising a daughter, right? There is, I think, if the daughter is faced with hardship, right? Trying to figure out how to how to how to phrase this. Um, when the daughter is faced with hardship, some, sometimes the father, the traditional father, will step in and fix it. Or... Yeah, fix it. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
uh, there's so much nuance here, so I'm, I'm trying to be careful with my words, but 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 that is one dynamic. Versus with a traditional father and a son, the father's approach might be like, no, you need to figure this out yourself, right? Um, and there is a masculine achievement orientedness that you know comes with like you have to figure this out yourself, right? So I'm curious, and you know, to whatever degree you're comfortable sharing, like how do you, you know, um, and how how old is your daughter? Just for uh, six months. Okay, cool. So still very young, but like, but like in the next few years, like mm-hmm. when she comes across challenges, how do you see your role in in yeah. guiding her through that? Yeah, you ask great questions, by the way. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So before like directly answering it, it's like, I do think, especially nowadays, everyone does need to some degree to have both, uh, both sides of themselves developed. Um, because of the fact that we're in a consumer society and we're not in a tribal environment where you can just be masculine because someone else is handling the feminine things, or you could just be feminine because someone else is, uh, taking care of the perimeter. Um, so I think both, I mean, like I wouldn't want my daughter to grow up helpless where she always needs a man to come around. Like that's like the, yeah, that's the, that's the reason why feminism had to be created. Right. Like, Cause there's too many women who are just helpless. Um, and at the same time, I don't have a son yet, but I probably, probably will be a little bit harder on him. Uh, partly because while both everyone needs a little bit of both, men really need to have that masculine ability because otherwise on one end, they're not really useful to society otherwise, because they, men can't make children. That's like maybe a a, a high end way of looking at things, but also, you know, just to be competitive in the world, uh, you know, like there's like the idea of Bateman's principle, uh, which I talk about in my history of man podcast, the idea of sperm is cheap, eggs are expensive. It's like, if a man isn't very competent and very self-sufficient uh i mean that like it's like the the, the tinder stats of the parader distribution where like the top 10 percent get the 90 percent of women like that is way more extreme for men and it's not just about dating it's about everything it's like men really need to be competitive because the the lowest status men of society get nothing like they get no dates they get no money whereas if you're a woman there's a little bit more leeway. And actually, I don't know, in the next generation, given that the world has become more androgynous and women have become more masculinized or expected to be more masculine, this maybe it won't be true uh, outside of reproduction. Maybe maybe all, maybe there'll, there'll also be a, a distribution like that with status with women as they become more, they become more, they, they run more on like testosterone driven instincts. Um, but yeah, I, I you know, in general, and certainly this will still be true in the dating world is like men really need to be self-sufficient to, to be attractive. And then the other thought I had was, uh, you know, you mentioned there is an androgynous move in -hmm. culture, right? Uh, How do you uh, see yourself explaining that to your daughter? I'm imagining, you know, like you know 20 years ago daughter goes to girl goes to toy shop she picks up a barbie doll you know barbie's like you know has like mm-hmm. stereotypical feminine like sort of sensibilities mm-hmm. right now actually like i think there you know 
um, there is more sort of uh, a, a lot of things. A lot of things in culture are becoming androgynous, right? Um, mm-hmm. Some for good reasons, some maybe not, right? So how do you like? How would you ex- like explain that to your daughter? Yeah, well, not that I want this to be a defining characteristic of my family, but I certainly, you know, we're we're certainly going to be picking schools that don't normalize this whole like uh, me- interrupting pe- uh, children's puberty for the sake of trans normalization. Like, I'm very against that, right? So, uh, that that is like a stand I'm going to make. Uh, in my, it's a stand I, I just feel very strongly about. I, I hope I don't have to fight about that too much. Like I hope I hope she doesn't have teachers that are opposed to that because then it's going to be very messy. Um, but I, I mean, I, as far as like the specifically androgyny, I th- think I, I hope that it won't have to be through lectures. The way, the way my dad tried to teach me things, I hope she just picks up like, okay, mom and dad have a very healthy relationship and they behave in a certain way. Not that anyone should be extreme because like both ends are are a little scary, right? Like Instagram has always been the narrative that uh, little girls are held to an, un, uh, an, an impossible standard of beauty, right? With magazines when we were kids and now Instagram is even worse with the filters. Like it literally makes women beautiful to the degree that even plastic surgery sometimes can't even do. So like that, that's a whole set of like potential self-esteem issues for a girl growing up wanting to be hyper feminine. And then there's the androgyny movement, which maybe is a reaction partly to that, uh, of, um, uh, maybe you should just be this androgynous thing. I hope I can show her that if she wants to have full fulfillment in her life, uh, neither extremes are good. Um, I don't know. I don't know exactly how to communicate to her. I mean, she, she doesn't speak yet, so we haven't, we haven't addressed that, yeah. but uh, yeah. And that is kind of my message to the world. I, I hope that, I hope that culture moves in that direction. Like, I don't know if we were recording when I said this, but um, I do feel a little vindicated that with some of my more controversial beliefs, <clears throat> culture has shifted in my direction, at least the culture that I, I subscribe to. Uh, obviously there's worlds that don't believe in anything, but I do think, you know, some of the things that maybe I thought that were more extreme some years ago, there's like a bigger backing for it. And I hope to live in those kinds of communities. Cool. Um, I think that's a great place to end. Uh, where can people learn more about your work? Um, my website's ruando.com. Uh, Ruando podcast and all the podcasting apps is where I share all of these kinds of ideas and my new passion project which might, yeah, it's the History of Man podcast where I started that because I really wanted to go beyond the abstractions and find the roots of masculinity and, you know, to some degree, uh, femininity and how, what is the best way for men to be based on real objective events, which is what history is. And we throw some biology in there too. So that's at historyofman.substack.com. I also post articles there. And yeah, those are the two places. All my thoughts are in long form. So if you like this interview, maybe you'd like my other stuff.